0: Hello friends and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation four and five should be read together. They represent the second vision in the book of Revelation. The first vision goes from uh, chapter one, verse 12, all the way through chapter three, verse 22. And this vision covers the whole of chapters four and five. It's sometimes said that Revelation four is the setting and then Revelation five is the drama. And I, I think that's just about right. The drama in this chapter has to do with a very important scroll. So John says in verse 1, and we'll read through, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the, right, uh, seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now let's talk first about this very interesting scroll. First thing we notice is that it was written, it says within and on the back. So it's written on the inside and on the outside. Now that's intended to get our attention. In the ancient world, when they were writing on uh, papyrus, you generally didn't write on the back of the scroll for the simple reason uh, it has to do with the way it's made. Uh, papyrus is like a reed, and you'd split it and open it up, and then you'd stitch them together, which would make writing horizontally from left to right or from right to left uh, very easy. Uh, but then they'd flip that over, and they'd paste on to the back some other ones that had been opened to create some strength and support so that the reeds on the back were actually vertical, which would be handy, I guess, for writing Chinese or Japanese. I think one of those uh, languages was written vertically. But it would certainly not be handy for writing left to right. There'd be a whole bunch of bumps uh, on your scroll. And so nobody wrote on the back of scrolls. And so that's the first thing that catch, catches our attention. Why, why do we have writing on the back? It must mean there was an awful lot to say, or it must mean that it's very important that the content not be separated. If, See, generally speaking, scrolls in the ancient world were a certain length, and they were quite expensive. You would go and buy one, and that would allow you to write a book of a certain length. And so, for example, that's why Luke and Acts are, first of all, two separate books. Uh, and second of all, it's why they are almost exactly the same length. They are both a full scroll-length story. And, and so if you really wanted a story to be kept together and it was slightly longer than the standard scroll length, you might write the, the end of it if you weren't a good scribe and you couldn't quite manage your word count. You might write the last paragraph or two uh, on the back of the last sheet that was stitched together. But you certainly wouldn't fill two whole scrolls unless you were either dirt poor or you were trying to communicate something. And, and so this is clearly a symbol. It's a symbol for a message that is fulsome and integral, must be kept together. Now, the second thing we see is that it was sealed with seven seals. Again, that's very unusual. Uh, normally, one seal would do. The job of the seal was to preserve the, the original, uh, the original binding copy that would be put away someplace for safekeeping so that if one of the copies, one of the subsequent copies was altered in any way it could be checked against the legal, binding, unopened, unaltered original. And so for that job, one seal on the outside of the roll would suffice. The fact that there are seven seals here probably indicates the significance of the contents and the majesty of the author. Uh, Some emperors were known to seal their will with seven seals. So that's probably what's being picked up here. Altogether, the symbolism seems to communicate that the contents of the scroll are comprehensive, detailed, very important, and interrelated. It has to be seen as a whole. Now, next we notice that there is apparently some question about who can open this scroll. Again, in Roman times, after an emperor died, the provisions of a will would be read and, and they would contain numerous instructions, promote General so-and-so, execute uh, Senator so-and-so, appoint my eldest son to the throne, send my youngest son into exile, and so forth. And then it would be someone's job to execute all those instructions. Well, if we understand this scroll as roughly God's plan for judgment and salvation, then we can certainly understand why John is eager to have its provisions carried out. He he wants to see the wicked punished. He wants to see the elect gathered. He wants to see the desert burst into bloom as life-giving waters flow from the throne of the Lord. So when it is first suggested that there was no one worthy to open the scrolls and the seals and to execute the provisions, John is understandably upset. The text says he wept. But then one of the elders says to him, weep no more for behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So here the elder, and and scholars differ whether, you know, we're to understand this elder here as an angel or a glorified saint. Uh, I don't suppose it matters a great deal, but here the elder expands John's vision of Jesus on the earth John had known Jesus as the Lamb of God. And, of course, Jesus remains the Lamb of God. But but now John sees that he is also simultaneously the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the Lion and the Lamb. He is meek and majestic. He came once to die, and he will come next to judge. Both aspects of Christ's nature are equally biblical and both must be preserved. So here John is told that Jesus is the one who is eminently qualified to open the scroll. That is to say, that because of who he is and because of what he's done, Jesus is positioned and qualified to bring God's saving and judging purposes to pass. Finally, right? If you're if you're a Bible reader, that's a finally moment. You understand the significance of this declaration. Because the Old Testament reads like an inspired version of waiting for Godot, right? I don't know if you read that play in high school, but just that sort of circular, endless spiral of waiting. And and, and there's a sense in which that's sort of the story of the Old Testament, right? I mean, think about the basic storyline of the Old Testament. God promises blessing to people who obey But no one obeys, right? God calls and corrects and punishes and replants. He makes fresh promises. Still, human beings prove themselves incapable of obeying God. Even when God blesses them entirely undeservedly, they can't hold those blessings because they can't handle those blessings. In their prosperity, they forget God. They worship the gifts instead of the giver. They fall away. They worship idols. They ignore the prophets. They persist in disobedience. And of course, they end up in exile. And and this storyline, this is the essential storyline of the Bible, and it repeats. It's present multiple times. My goodness, in the story of the judges, this story is more or less repeated every chapter. It is a cyclical story. And, it, and, and, and it's like the, the nation of Israel keeps winding down in this spiral of, of blessing, but then disobedience, and then cursing, and then exile. And you wonder, when will it stop? How will it stop? By the end of the Old Testament, you're supposed to be absolutely convinced that there needs to be some kind of breakthrough, right? Because God isn't getting any less holy, and people aren't getting any less sinful. So something has to change. Someone is going to have to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and pay for what we have done that we might have peace with God. Enter Jesus. And that's exactly how the story goes. Revelation 5, 6-7, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Jesus is able, right? Because Jesus lived the life we never could. He obeyed God perfectly. He kept the whole law for his people. He loved God and his fellow man perfectly. And he has earned all the blessings God promised to give. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians. Isn't that great? Thanks be to God. And Jesus died the death that we owe to God. He is right now in heaven, standing for us as the lamb who has been slain. He stands in heaven as our payment. He stands as our righteousness between the throne, the text says, and the four living creatures, meaning he offers us, in him we have unimaginable, intimate access to the most high and holy God. So given all of who he is and all of what he's done, he is obviously and transparently entirely qualified to affect all of God's saving and judging purposes upon the earth. Praise the Lord. And that is what comes next. Look at verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Verses 8 to 10. Now, let's let's notice a few important features in that paragraph. First of all, let's notice that the sacrifice of Jesus is here connected in some way. It's associated with the prayers of the saints. All right, so let's talk about those prayers. We're told in verse 8 that they are likened to bowls full of incense. So this same imagery shows up again in chapter 8. In chapter 8, verses 3 to 4, it says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So here again, we have this idea that in some sense, the prayers of the saints are are captured and stored in bowls in the presence of God. And and that when they're full, as it were, they, they sort of tip out in acts of judgment and mercy upon the earth. Do you see that? Now, this, every time I read this, this reminds me of those sort of tipping buckets, those splashing buckets that you get at Splash Pads for kids. There's one at Canada's Wonderland. I was at another Splash Pad just recently. They had it as well. So the kids stand under the bucket, and, and some sort of tap is open to fill the bucket. And then once the bucket reaches some sort of tipping point, it splashes out upon the kids, and everyone has a grand old time. Well, the exact same imagery here, that, it, that in... In, in some sense, the prayers of the saints are stored and when, when some sort of tipping point is reached, when, when some sort of uh, full mark is, is reached, they are then poured out on the earth in acts of salvation and judgment. Th- that's what we're seeing here. The Bible seems to be saying in very careful ways that while it is true that all of our salvation is due entirely to the work of Christ on our behalf, yet also there is some sense in which it may be seen as God's response to the prayers of his people. God moves savingly in Christ in chapter 5 and and in judgment in chapter 8 in response to the prayers of his people. I think that should be very encouraging to us. Dear brother, dear sister, you need to know that your prayers are not wasted. They are stored in a bowl, and when the time is right, They're poured back out onto the earth in works of salvation and judgment. Praise the Lord. All right, now we need to move a little faster. We need to back up to verse 9 in chapter 5. The heavenly court is singing a new song, and in that song they say to Jesus that by your blood you ransomed people for God. Now let's just say two quick things about that. First of all, let's state clearly that the blood of Christ was real and effective in its working. It, it is becoming distressingly common to hear pastors and preachers say that Jesus didn't actually have to die on the cross, that it was not the plan of God for him to die. It was just humans that put Jesus to death. God intended him only to serve as our example. You hear that now all the time. That is a shocking departure from biblical orthodoxy. Uh, for one thing, Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. That's very, very clear. The plan of redemption was God's plan. To suggest otherwise is only to prove your ignorance of Scripture. Secondly, to suggest that Jesus' death was just an accident or a tragedy, and that it was not necessary for our standing with God, is to ignore the words of this text, Revelation 5.9. By your blood you ransomed. The Greek word literally means purchased. It's a market word. The blood of Jesus satisfied an agreed-upon price for human rebellion. That price is stated right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2, 17. God says, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. A price was set very early on in the Bible for rebellion and autonomy. And on the cross of Calvary, Jesus paid that price in full. Revelation 5 goes on to say, then I looked And all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. All Christian worship is rooted in the idea that the death of Christ on the cross matters. It changed everything everything. It it set the world back on its axis. It defeated sin. It absorbed the curse. It made a people and it inspired a new song. And that song will be sung by the angels and by the saints forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, You can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word.